Now, how many of you have a scar or two somewhere on your body? Now, when you raise your hand, this is not gonna be show and tell, okay? I'm just trying to see, do we have anybody who has a scar that you have? Yeah. How many of you, those scars are from maybe before you're 18 years of age? Yeah, the majority of you raised your hand and said, yeah, they're from an earlier age. Uh, Our scars often point to our failures and mistakes and maybe even the failures and mistakes of others or accidents that happened. And I have uh, two scars. One is very noticeable. You can see it anytime you look at my face. And the other is on my right knee. But what's interesting is as I've gotten older and gained weight, they both sort of disappeared. I don't know what happened. They got absorbed somehow. But when I was about four years old, uh, our neighbor was laying down a new sidewalk in the distance. I don't know if it's three feet or what for a square of, of concrete being laid. The distance was such that at my height and everything as a kid, I tripped over one of the boards. We were playing in that setting and I tripped over one board and I hit the other two by four frame that had been laid. And my chin, and one of my earliest memories of all my life is standing up and seeing all the blood coming from my chin. Had to get stitches and So I've had a scar, it's sort of disappeared as I've gotten older, right here, and some people have complimented it over the years early on, when you could see it, that it was like a cleft uh, chin or something, but it was actually a scar here. And then I have a scar on my right knee. Uh, It used to actually have a little bit of a cinder in it. I grew up on a cinder road, and like ash is to wood, cinder is to coal, and it can be jagged and sharp, and when you learn to ride a bicycle on a cinder road, you end up with cinders in your knees, uh, right, right under the skin. Some of them you could get out, some of them you couldn't. But when I see or sense either of those scars, I notice them, it points back to those events that happened in my upbringing on a victory road in Mishawaka, Indiana, northern Indiana. I don't know what your scars point back to physically, but they point back sometimes to things that were pretty scary, maybe some pretty startling things, maybe some pretty innocent things, but your scars point back to something. Spiritually speaking, our failures and mistakes and our sins, when we see them, they not only point back to our sin, I think they also point forward to our Savior. Today, we're gonna continue in the life of David. The life of David has been just, this is this 10th century B.C., a figure in scripture who uh, is described as a man after God's own heart, and yet God doesn't keep back from us the darker periods of David's life and the consequences that come from his sin. We're gonna talk specifically today about living with the scars of our sins. We're gonna see David dealing with the scars of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah as we look at seven chapters in the book of 2 Samuel. We won't be reading all of it, I'll be reading some selected scriptures that'll help us understand how we live with the scars of our sin through the example of David. So if you wanna turn in your Bibles, if you have a hard copy of the Bible or you have a digital copy like I have here on my iPad, go to 2 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be moving around these chapters, so be ready if you wanna follow along in your own Bible there. Also, the words will be available on the screen. I will be reading from the New Living Translation because as you read longer swaths of narrative passages in the Old Testament, I think there's a clarity that comes as we read that in its flow. And uh, I, I wanna go back to what we talked about last week. This, is the, this week is the 13th message in this series on the life of David. We'll conclude uh, with 15 in just a couple of weeks. But last week, we looked at chapter 12. We talked about how when sin entered into David's life and he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, forced himself on her and then killed her husband to cover it up, and he tried to keep it quiet, 
the prophet Nathan showed up and, and said, you are the one who has done this. And he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan tells him, God speaks through Nathan. And Nathan says, there are going to be consequences. There are going to be a lot of turmoil and trouble in your family for years and decades to come that are going to become the natural consequences. Your kids have been watching. They, his, his children, when he sinned, many of them were already teenagers and young adults. And, and they were watching what was happening in his life. And they picked up patterns that become a problem for him, and the fulfillment of those consequences play out in chapters 13 through 19 of 2 Samuel. Now in chapter 13, there are really two stories, two overarching stories of chapters 13 through 19. The first has to do with his oldest son, Amnon, who all along David thought would be his successor, the next king. So he's thought of as the prince, the, the king-in-waiting of Israel. And Amnon, his oldest son, lusts after his half-sister Tamar. They shared David as a father and had two different mothers. And so Amnon lusts after her to the point then that he attacks her and rapes her. She is devastated, of course, and as she's leaving in mourning and broken and, and hurt and, and violated her full brother, Absalom, they shared not only David as their father, but they shared the same mother, meets her and, and takes her into his house and protects her. And, and he kind of lets things simmer. Actually, it goes two years that nothing really happens to Amnon for what he did to Tamar, his, his sister, his half-sister. But then Absalom, who is one of David's sons, plans this feast for all of his brothers to come to. And it's really a plot to kill Amnon two years after the attack on Tamar. And so you can read in chapter 13 how the sons of David show up for this great feast thrown by their brother. Everybody thinks this is kind of this patching up of the family. And when Amnon gets drunk, Absalom kills him. The other brothers get on their mules and ride away. Now, I don't know how fast mules move, but they were trying to get out of there as quick as they could because one of their brothers had been killed by the other brother. It creates chaos, and, and Absalom flees to a foreign country where he is hiding for three years, and finally David allows him to return to Jerusalem, but he's sort of out on, under house arrest, and he lives for two years that way. David will not see him, won't let him into his presence. And then one day David extends some grace toward Absalom and allows him back into his presence, but then we read in chapter 15 how Absalom spends the next four years, so you got to get this here, we're talking this is a total of 11 years covered in 2 Samuel 13 through 19, but he takes four years, Absalom does, the son of David, to plan a plot, a coup, to overthrow his father. Nice people, aren't they, this group of individuals? It takes four years to do that. As a matter of fact, in that day, a king in the ancient world was not only the executor of the administrative branch, but he was also the legislative branch, and he was also the judicial branch. So in Israel, the king would sit in some of the prominent cities, and he would sit at the gate of Jerusalem, and people could come to him. They knew which days they could come, and he would act as the Supreme Court to deal with their disputes and their arguments, kind of their lawsuits against each other. And Absalom, in these four years, one of the things he did is he would kind of go up the road a little bit from the gate where his father would sit and make judgments, and people would come, and he'd say, where are you from? And they'd tell him what tribe they were from and how far they traveled, and he'd say, well, what's your case? And they'd give their case, and maybe this was the plaintiff, and they've got a complaint, and, and he says to them, oh, you know, there's a big line over there with my dad, and if I were king, I would make judgments quicker, it'd be more efficient, we'd have more judges, and you know, you've got a case. If I were king, I would judge in your favor. And they would walk along. Then the defendant in the same case would come, and guess what he'd say to them? 
If I were king, I would judge and you would win your case. And so he's saying this to everyone, but he doesn't have to really make a public decision. And so he undermines David and eventually he puts together an entourage. Absalom is described as the most handsome man in Israel. It's said that he has this thick flowing hair that he only cuts once a year and when he does cut it, his hair weighs five pounds. He's this handsome, winsome guy. He's got a great personality. He actually puts together an entourage of soldiers that go in front of him whenever he moves through Israel. He acts like he's king. He's one of those people, you know these influencers that really never did anything but they're famous? That's Absalom. If there had been selfies in the day, he would have been taking selfies by the hundreds every day and posting them. But it works. It creates a rebellion. He wins the heart of all of Israel. And it becomes such a crisis that David says, I've got to leave Jerusalem because if the battle comes to Jerusalem, it's going to be terrible bloodshed. And if anybody still loved David and all of Israel by the time Absalom was done in those four years of preparing this coup, it was the people of Jerusalem. And David says, I can't have the battle be here. I'm going to have to leave. And he, with an entourage of soldiers and priests and his advisors, they they flee. They actually go up through the Kidron Valley, up over the Mount of Olives, down into the Jordan Valley. They cross the Jordan River and eventually David for months has to stay in a foreign land because he's gonna wage war outside of Jerusalem with his forces and Absalom's forces. And he tells his forces, when you go against Joab, or when you go against Absalom's people, do not kill Absalom, bring him back to me, he's my son, I don't want him killed. But Absalom riding through the woods gets his hair caught in a thick tree and he gets picked up off his mule by his hair and he's dangling from the tree Joab, the general, comes along and he goes right against what David said and he throws darts through David's heart and then he has his men kill him while he's hanging there. He tortures him and kills him. David hears about that and grieves, but he returns to Jerusalem to reestablish his presence as king of Israel and the kingdom is again united under David. Really pretty stories here in in 2 Samuel 13, 19. I'm glad God shows us the failures of his people even the people he describes as having a heart after his as he describes David. So we can learn lessons of how we deal with not only our sin, but the consequences of sin, the scars of our sin. And when we look at the scars of our sin, it not only points back to our sin, our mistakes, and our failures, the things that we live with, the broken lives, and how it's affected others, but it also is a reminder of God's grace. You see, the scars of our sin, the scars of our sins, point to Jesus' scars from the cross. There's this beautiful picture in Scripture that the one who had the nails put through his hands and his feet and the spear through his side, that in his glorified body, those nail prints are still there. The spear hole is still there to remind us that God loved us so much he sent Jesus to die for us and that all of our sins are covered and and taken care of because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And there's this wonderful imagery in the scriptures that the only scars that are in heaven are not our scars, but Jesus' scars to remind us of his grace. You see, the scars of our sins point to the scars of his grace, and that should encourage and help us as we deal with our failures and sins in our past. Let's talk now as we dive into certain parts of this this story and of these scriptures, these two stories of Amnon forcing himself on his sister and Absalom killing Amnon, and then 
Absalom creating this coup attempt and being killed and David returning as king. Let's learn what we can from how David deals with these things that are directly the consequences of what we saw in chapters 11 and 12. These are the scars that David lives with because of his sin. Scars from our sins remind us several things, six things I want us to see. Number one, scars from our sins remind us that no one lives in a vacuum. Everything we do affects someone else. Think about that now. Every action you take, every post you make on social media, every text you send, every email you send off affects somebody. Your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. Sometimes it even can affect strangers. No one lives in a vacuum. Everything we do affects someone else. When David hears about Absalom killing Amnon, And all that happens there, he is disturbed. He is upset. We read in 2 Samuel 13, 21 to 22, just when he hears about what's happened to Tamar, his daughter, by the hand of his son Amnon, who's supposed to be the next in line to be king, when David heard heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. So this hatred, this division comes Because when David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, it wasn't done in a vacuum. He wasn't able to clean it all up with a nice little bow. The natural consequences of his kids seeing his hypocrisy, actually what happens with Amnon and Absalom is they repeat the sin of David as Amnon forced himself on his sister and then Absalom, to deal with it, kills someone. When David brings Absalom back to Jerusalem, puts him kind of under house arrest for two years, and then finally reconnects with him, and there are still consequences that come as Absalom begins to plot this coup. And when he's standing there greeting people on their way to the gate for judgment, we read this in 2 Samuel 15, 5 through 6 about Absalom. When people tried to bow down before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. You see this smooth operator here? Oh, don't bow to me. I'm just Absalom. He takes their hand and kisses them on the hand. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. See, what David did against Bathsheba and Uriah was not done in a vacuum. What Amnon did, what Absalom does, what all the different characters do in this passage is not done in a vacuum. So what does this mean for us? How do we live with the scars of our own sins, the brokenness, the pain, the consequences that have come? It should remind us when we look at our own scars that we should think about others before you act. Think about others before you act. Before you make that post, before you reply to that text, before you have that conversation, before you make that decision, before you take that action, stop and say, how is this gonna affect the people in my life? Because it will affect them. Don't kid yourself. No one lives in a vacuum. Take a deep breath. Maybe this week as you, as you text, as you post something, or you reply to a post, or you engage with one, someone, stop and say, how is this going to affect others? Someone has said this, thinking before acting is wisdom, but acting before thinking is regret. No one lives in a vacuum. Our scars from our sins remind us of that. Secondly, scars from our sins remind us that sin unleashes chaos. Even sometimes a little white lie or a little cheating here, a little out of control anger toward our family or our children, a spouse, can unleash chaos 
turmoil. We can't contain the cascading consequences of our actions. I bet if David could, he'd try to control all that would come in his family. But what Nathan said to him is, look, you're going to reap what you have sown. God's forgiven you, yes, but the consequences, the cascading consequences are still going to unroll. Uh, they're going to roll out. They're the natural result of what you've done. Now, let me give you just a simple list of the terrible things that happen in 2 Samuel 13 through 19. These are the chaos, the the cascading consequences of David's sin. There's rape, incest, treason, rebellion, murder, revenge, arrogance, abuse, deception, greed, betrayal, hatred, suicide, and conspiracy. Now go home and read that passage this afternoon and have a good afternoon. I mean, (laughs) why does God include this? Some people just say, well, it's just the Old Testament. No, he's trying to say to us, look, pay attention. Your sin unleashes chaos. Some of you know that very well. Some of you could tell stories and say, oh, man, I did this, and I never could believe what happened. We can't contain the cascading consequences of our actions. When Absalom throws that party, that feast, to bring all the brothers together and kills Amnon, actually, there's a lot of chaos and confusion that comes as a messenger comes uh, to, to David, this is the message that comes back to David about the feast that he knew was happening among his sons in 2 Samuel 13, 30 to 31. As they were on the way back to Jerusalem, this report reached David. As the sons were coming back to Jerusalem, this report gets to David. You know, uh, Mark Twain said that gossip or rumor has the ability to get halfway around the world before truth can put its boots on. That's what happens here. The sons are coming to tell David, Absalom killed Amnon, and before they can get there, a messenger comes and says, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Not one is left alive. So David hears that Absalom killed all of his sons. The king got up, tore his robe, and threw himself on the ground. His advisors also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. This is part of the chaos that was unleashed by David's own sin. So what does that mean for us? If you're going to live with the scars of your sin, the damage it's done, the wounds it's inflicted even after forgiveness, remember there are always ripple effects to whatever you do. Every action you take, every word you say, every response to a post, every emotion you express is like a pebble being dropped in the water and the ripple effects take place. Remember there are always ripple effects to whatever you do. Thirdly, the scars from our sins remind us that tears reflect the brokenness of our humanity. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, and need a Savior. I'm a sinner. I need the Savior Jesus. I don't care who you are. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. You missed the mark. You've crossed the line of God's boundaries. You've sinned. I've sinned. We're all broken people, frail in our humanity, We're all broken people who were raised by broken people, who live with broken people, who love broken people, who struggle with broken people, who work with broken people. It's a part of our humanity and and our interactions where we hurt one another and cause pain, it it produces tears and sorrow and, and, and part of the scars we experience from our sin is the tears that flow because of the brokenness that comes. We all need a savior, not just to save us and make us God's child forever through faith in Christ, but also we need that Savior to walk with us daily to show us his grace and his his faithfulness and his righteousness to continue to forgive us of all our sin.
Tamar went away, having been violated and attacked by her own half-brother in tears and brokenness. When David's sons finally arrived and he finds out it was only Amnon who was killed by Absalom, we read in 2 Samuel 13, 36 to 37, they soon arrived weeping and sobbing, and the king and all his servants wept bitterly with them, and David mourned many days for his son Amnon. They're weeping, they're crying. As David has to flee Jerusalem, in that second story where Absalom creates this coup, David has to leave Jerusalem. It's a sad, sad day. And this is how it describes the crowds as they're watching David leave the gates of the city of Jerusalem, the great city on the hill that he himself had conquered and established to be the place where the world would know about the one true God, Jehovah God. Listen to what happened as he leaves. 2 Samuel 15, 23. Everyone cried loudly as the king and his followers passed by. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out toward the wilderness. And as David himself is leaving, leaves Jerusalem, the crowds are crying, then he climbs up the Mount of Olives. And by the way, if you're going with us or thinking about going with us to Israel in February of 2024, just in a few months, we're gonna walk down the Mount of Olives that take the same path Jesus took as he rode into Jerusalem on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. But he's going up the hill of the Mount of Olives with Jerusalem behind him. And look at the description of what's happening as David leaves Jerusalem. David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. That's some jagged rock terrain. It's hard on his feet, but there's a brokenness. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. And they would glance back over their shoulder and see the beautiful city of Jerusalem. The tears express the brokenness of humanity. And then when Absalom is wrongfully killed as he's hanging from the tree by Joab, a messenger arrives and says, King, to where David is across the Jordan in a foreign land, he arrives and says, King David, guess what? The rebellion is over. You can return to Jerusalem. We have won the victory. You're king again of all of Israel. And David says, what about the young man Absalom? Well, king, you, you've won the victory. And David gets it. And we read in 2 Samuel 18, the king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway, the gate of the city where he'd been waiting for word, this foreign land, about what had happened in the battle. Went up over the gateway and burst into tears for the loss of his son. And as he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. Marcus Klotz, who's often up here leading what was on the drums today, uh, he has his master's degree in music, and uh, he was telling me that that verse there, he wrote his master's thesis on a song, a 20-minute song where it just keeps singing those words of David. I said to him, well, I'm glad we didn't know that before because that would be a terrible song for us to have here. But he said that his thesis was on looking how just the music, the words keep repeating right from the text, but the music that the composer put to this 20-minute piece, the style of music covered all five of the stages of grief to express what David was going through in the depth of his sorrow and pain. This is David's crying over his son Absalom. All of that is an indication that we live in a groaning, broken world that one day Jesus will make it all right, but right now it's a groaning, broken world. You know, when Jesus lived in human flesh, he 
knew the heartache, not the sin personally, a new temptation and how, to, how he dealt with that, but he knew the pain of humanity so much so that when his friend Lazarus dies and he's there by the, the, the tomb, he looks at Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and he cries, not because Lazarus has died, because he knows what he's going to do in raising him for a season from the dead, but he cries because he sees the pain that humanity goes through with some of the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve, death itself. And the shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five, 35, where it says, Jesus wept. One of the great connections that Jesus has to us as human beings is he knows what it means to cry pain because of the brokenness of humanity. Jesus wept. When you weep, Jesus weeps. When you're in pain, he's in pain. Tears reflect that even as Jesus grieves over the depravity and brokenness of humanity. But there is this promise that one day he's coming, he's gonna make all things right. And Revelation 21.4 says that when Jesus establishes his eternal kingdom and all the groaning of the brokenness of this world and of humanity is gone, we read in Revelation 21.4, God shall wipe away all tears. There shall be no more pain, nor sorrow, nor crying, for there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. One day all the tears will be wiped away when Jesus returns and sets everything right. The tears that we shed over the brokenness, the pain, the sin of our lives and the sin of others should cause us, as we look at those scars, to live with those scars by humbling ourselves and letting him save us. Humble yourself and let him save you. If you haven't come to that place where you understand you are a sinner just like I am and everyone else is and that you need a savior, may I just challenge you today to put your faith in the one who loved you, who died for you, was buried and was raised for you so that you could have forgiveness Experience his saving grace now and forever as you become his child, but then he'll walk with you as your savior through the brokenness and pain. You'll be able to take your sin to him and understand that his grace continues to flow over you. Put your faith in Jesus. Our care and prayer team is always down front after the service. They can pray with you and talk to you, answer any questions about what it means to know Jesus as your savior. I'll be in the lobby, our, our staff. I can have someone on our team just share with you. If you'd like to just right now say, okay, I, I know those tears. I know the pain. I know the brokenness of my sin. I need Jesus as my personal Savior. You can just text the number 58568 and just put the name Jesus as the text and we'll immediately respond and then we'll follow up this week to help you know that you know Jesus as your Savior. You say, well, I've, I've put my faith in Jesus as my Savior. Well, be reminded that Grieving over our sin is a part of knowing God and understanding who we are in him. A.W. Pink said, it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it that distinguishes the child of God from others. Are you grieving over your sin? You can go to your Savior. First John 1 John 1.9 says he'll be faithful and just to forgive us of our sin as we go and acknowledge, confess our sins to him. Fourthly, Scars from our sins remind us that God knows what is best. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The God, get, get this, the God who made us knows the truth about us and knows that if we follow his pattern and his plan as our creator, we'll experience sig significance and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and joy in life. If we say, I'm just gonna go out and live whatever I believe truth is, I'm gonna live out my truth, doesn't matter what God's word says, there's gonna be conflict. And the more our world says it doesn't matter 
what truth you live by as long as it's good for you, the more we, cask- we, the more we move into that, the more we're dealing with higher rates of depression and anxiety and suicide. When we live according to the way God has wired us and planned for us, he knows what's best for us. And, and there, he knows better than we know ourselves what is best for us. When David is fleeing Jerusalem, the priests Zadok and Abiathar, they've properly taken the Ark of the Covenant that was the symbol of God's presence with his people, and it's going with them, and they get outside the city, and David says, wait a minute, wait a minute, send the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. Look what he says in 2 Samuel 15, 25 to 26. Then the king instructed Zadok to take the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, now here he's saying, whatever God says is best, that's best. If God sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the Ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me as king of Israel, then let him do what seems best to him. I want God's best. So let's just put the Ark back And if he wants me to be in his presence, to see the ark again, to be in the tabernacle again in Jerusalem, he'll do what's best. I'm gonna trust God with the outcome. Max Lucado said, faith is not the belief that God will do what you want. It is the belief that God will do what is best or right. By the way, this is the third time I've used this quote in this series on the life of David because I think it represents a lot about David's life, but it represents a lot about our lives. God's not gonna just give you what you want. He's gonna give you what's best, even when it doesn't seem best to you. He knows you better than you know yourself. So what does that mean in terms of as we live with the scars of our own sin? Trust who he is and obey what he says. Trust who he is and obey what he says. I played the piano for like three or four years. I think it was close to six years of lessons. I never got beyond like plunking with a finger or two and it wasn't the teacher's fault, it was my fault. I never practiced in between. A waste of money on my parents' part, piano lessons for me. But I remember one of the hymns I loved to play as a kid, maybe 10 or 11 years old, plunking it out on one finger. The words are like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You trust what God says is true in his word, you obey it, and that's the only way to happiness and joy and meaning and satisfaction in life. Trust who he is and obey what he says. If you reject and don't trust him and you don't obey him, your life is gonna be torn apart in chaos. Fifthly, playing God never works. Scars from our sins remind us that playing God never works. He is sovereign over everything and we barely control anything. I pray on a regular basis. I've told you this before and I trust maybe some of you are praying this now. You are God and I am not. It's a healthy exercise to remind ourselves we're trying to control all the dynamics of our lives. He is the sovereign God of all the universe. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and we need to make sure he is Lord of our lives. There's a great character that shows up during the rebellion of Absalom. He actually shows up when David is leaving the city, and he shows up when David is returning and Absalom is defeated. His name is Shimei. 
If you have your Bible, go to 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. I want you to read Shimei and how he interacts with David as David is grieving and leaving the city. He's dejected and down. His own son has created this coup. 2 Samuel 16, 5. As King David came to Baharim, a man came out of the village cursing them, the, his entourage. It was Shimei, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. He threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. This does not seem smart for this guy, right? Says the mighty warriors that are with David. He's throwing stones at them. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, Shimei shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last you will taste some of your own medicine, for you're a murderer. Why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king, Abishai, son of Zehariah, demanded? Let me go over and cut off his head. This guy, no problem. We take care of him right now, David. David is dejected, barefoot, head covered, Sad, broken. No, the king said. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zeruiah? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, my own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told, me, told him to do it. And perhaps the Lord will see that I am wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. God's allowed this. Maybe God's gonna do something with this. So David and his men continued down the road and Shimei, get this, Shimei kept pace with them on a nearby hillside, cursing and throwing stones and dirt at David. So David's dejected, walking along with all these soldiers leaving Jerusalem and this guy reminds me of a character on a very successful 1950s sitcom, The Andy Griffith Show. He reminds me of this character, many of you probably don't know this character, but his name is Ernest T. Bass. This is the character from The Andy Griffith Show. Whenever he came into town, he threw rocks to get people's attention. He'd throw, he was, didn't have social skills, and he'd throw rocks, and, and he'd say, it's me, it's me, it's Ernest T. And he, if he wanted to date a girl, he threw a rock through a window, and he made fun of people, and he stood up on the hillside. And So whenever I've read this passage, I picture Ernest T. as Shimei. But David says, look, I'm not gonna play God anymore. When I've tried to play God, David says, it backfired. I'm gonna let God take care of Shimei. I'm not gonna play God. God is sovereign, I'm gonna let him control these things. So what does that mean for us? Submit to his lordship and leave the outcome to him. Submit to his lordship and leave the outcome to him. He just says, we're gonna let God be God. If you're trying to control everything, maybe this week, every day, you need to say to God, you are God and I'm not. You are God and I'm not. Submit to his lordship and leave the outcome and the results to him. Sixth and finally, scars from our sins remind us that God's grace is shareable. The grace we've been shown is the grace we're to share. The grace God has shown you and forgiving you of your sins. That grace, when you see the scars... <laughs> from your failures and sins of your past and you recognize the consequences in your life, be reminded God's grace has covered that, forgiven that, you're set free from that, even if the consequences continue, the natural outcome of how you've affected other people and their lives. This week on our social media, we asked you to share songs, hymns, old praise and worship songs, some of the more contemporary songs about God's grace, and you share with us 
some wonderful old hymns and some contemporary songs, all different styles, and we put together this playlist, the Grace Playlist, playlist, excuse me. You can scan the QR code that's on the screen or you can just go to our social media, Facebook or, or Instagram for Calvary Community Church, Westlake Village, and um, you can get that playlist of God's grace songs. Can I encourage you this week, let the grace of God flow over you. If you've been reminded of some of your scars and some of your failures and some of the brokenness of your life and relationships and family and all that, that just let the grace of God flow over you as those songs, those hymns minister to you while you're driving a car, while you're getting ready in the morning. Let that playlist minister to your life. So now David is king again. Absalom's been defeated. Everybody rallies around David. The, city, the country is united. He returns to the city of Jerusalem. And as he's returning, as he's returning, we read in 2 Samuel 19, 18 to 23. By the way, guess who shows up again? This guy. This guy shows up again, this Ernest T. Bass character. Remember, he's cursing him, throwing dirt on him along the way as David's leaving the town. Now he realizes David is king. Uh-oh. So he shows up again. As the king was about to cross the river, Shimei fell down before him. My lord, the king, please forgive me, he pleaded. Forget the terrible thing your servant did when you left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. Don't worry about it at all. Don't give it a second thought what I did to you. I know how much I sinned. That is why I've come here today, the very first person in all Israel to greet the Lord, my king, as he came back into the country. I'm the first guy here to welcome you back, king. Then Abishai, same guy again, right? He says, Shimei should die, for he cursed the Lord's anointed king. David responds, who asked your opinion? Why have you become my adversary today? This is not a day of execution, for today I am once again the king of Israel. Then turning to Shimei, David vowed, your life will be spared. David knew the grace of God in his life from his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, the lie, the cover-up. He'd experienced the grace even though the scars were playing out and the consequences of his life. He's been reminded of those scars, of the wounds. But he takes the grace God has shown him and he says, buddy, <laughs> we all need God's grace. I'm gonna show it to you. And what's so amazing about grace, Philip Yancey says, that if you look at the life of Jesus, every time he was met with ungrace, he didn't meet that ungrace with more ungrace, he met that ungrace with grace. Kindness people don't deserve, that's what grace is. And yet we have this mindset in Christianity right now that if I disagree with someone in their posts and if they were rude to me, I can be rude back because they started it. What are you, in kindergarten? That is not the spirit of Christ. That is not living and loving like Jesus. We have to understand the grace we've received is a shareable grace that we're to extend to others who, yes, hurt us. Shimei mocked David, belittled him. In the ancient world, he should have been killed when he did it, but now that David's the victor, he should even be more killed, but David says, you will not die. I'm gonna show you grace because God has shown me grace, allowing me to come back as king. So as you remember that God's grace is shareable, how do you live with the scars of sin? Give others space to fail and be forgiven. Give them space to fail and be forgiven, to say the wrong word, to make a bad post, send a text that's disruptive or rude, Give them space to fail and then be quick to forgive. Why? Ephesians 4.32 says we forgive other people because God has forgiven us. 
Josh McDowell says, for a Christian, every relationship is an opportunity to love another person like God has loved us. Every relationship is an opportunity for you to share God's grace, love, and mercy with someone else. Every relationship, everybody you work with, everybody online, everybody in your neighborhood, every family member. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. We get to share God's grace with others. We get to spread it to others. So as you've been reminded of the scars of your sin, it should remind you there are consequences, but also those scars should point to the scars of Jesus from the cross. Your scars of sin should point to the scars of his grace in your life. And you share that grace with others. Do the scars of your sins remind you of the scars of his grace? Do the scars of your sin remind you of the scars of yours? We should run to him. He, like the prodigal father, has his arms open, waiting for us to just keep going to him, even as we deal with the consequences of our sin, to to allow ourselves to bathe in his grace and then to spread that grace to other people. The scars of your life remind you of the scars of his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for... Jesus, for his example of grace when people came to him with ungrace. Thank you for the example of David. We can see the consequences of his sin and how he wrestled to live with those scars of sin. And may we learn these lessons well, understand that nothing that happens happens in a vacuum. Help us, Father, to realize that sin unleashes chaos, that the tears represent that, that practical aspect of our human brokenness that you know what is best for us even when we don't know what's best for us. Help us to recognize, Father, that you are God and we are not. And help us, Lord, as we think of the brokenness of our sin, the consequences that flow, to remember the grace you've shown us is to be shared with others. Help us to bask in your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.